My name is Aaron. I'm one of the pastors here at River City. Thanks so much for coming. Um, so uh, my name is, well, I'm Becky's favorite husband here. So, uh, so we, ha- uh, we have three daughters, uh, one in high school, one in middle school, one in fifth grade. So we're starting school tomorrow. So we're really excited about that in our household and everything. So, so if this is your first time here this, uh, here this morning, we're, so we're nearing our end of preaching um, through a series in first, the book of First Corinthians, which is a book uh, written by Paul in the New Testament. So, so we've been solely preaching through 1 Corinthians passage by passage, and this week we've come, uh, the passage that we've come to is chapter 14, verses 1 through 40. So, so a lot of verses this morning. So, uh, so about 2,000 years ago, 1 Corinthians was a letter written by the Apostle Paul to a local church that he started slash planted uh, five years prior in the Roman city of Corinth. So, so long story short, Paul was off ministering somewhere else. Uh, he received a report about the Corinthian church. Uh, He wrote a letter, he sent a letter, they received the letter, they read that letter out loud in front of the whole worship gathering, kind of like what we're doing here this morning. So, um, and as we've seen through this sermon series, Paul has been addressing one problem after another in this local church, and we've seen time and time again how the gospel is ultimately the solution to every problem in this local church, and there there was just problem after problem that Paul was addressing. So it's kind of a lengthy passage this morning, so we're just going to jump into it. So the passage will be up on the screen. So chapter 14, verse 1, follow the, Paul says, follow the way of love and eagerly desire gifts of the Spirit, especially prophecy. For anyone who speaks in a tongue does not speak to people, but to God. Indeed, no one understands them. They utter mysteries by the Spirit. But the one who prophesies speaks to, peop- speaks to people for their strengthening, encouraging, and comfort. Anyone who speaks in a tongue edifies themselves. But the one who prophesies edifies the church. I would like every one of you to speak in tongues, but I would rather have you prophesy. The one who prophesies is greater than the one who speaks in tongues, unless someone interprets, so that the church may be edified. Now, brothers and sisters, if I come to you and speak in tongues, what good will I be to you unless I bring some, some revelation or knowledge or prophecy or word of instruction? Even in the case of lifeless things that make sounds, such as a pipe or harp, how will anyone know what tune is being played unless there is a distinction in the notes? Again, if the trumpet does not sound a clear call, who will get ready for battle? So it is with you. Unless you speak intelligible words with your tongue, how will anyone know what you are saying? You will just be speaking into the air. Undoubtedly, undoubtedly there are all sorts of languages in the world, yet none of them is without, is without meaning. If then I do not grasp the meaning of what someone is saying, I am a foreigner to the speaker, and the speaker is a foreigner to me. So it is with you. Since you are eager for gifts of the Spirit, try to excel in those that build up the church. For this reason, the one who speaks in a tongue should pray that they should interpret what they, are, what they say. For if I pray in a tongue, my spirit prays, but my mind is unfruitful. So what shall I do? I will pray with my spirit, but I will also pray with my understanding. I will sing with my spirit, but I will also sing with my understanding. Otherwise, when you are praising God in the spirit, how can someone else who is now put in the position of an inquirer say amen to your thanksgiving since they do not know what you are saying? You are giving thanks well enough, but no one else is edified. I thank God that I speak in tongues more than all of you. But in the church, I would rather speak five intelligible words to instruct others than 10,000 words in a tongue. Brothers and sisters, stop thinking like children. In regard to evil, be infants. 
but in your thinking be adults. In the law it is written, with other tongues and through the lips of foreigners, I will speak to this people, and, but even then they will not listen to me, says the Lord. Tongues then are a sign, not for believers, but for unbelievers. Prophecy, however, is not for unbelievers, but for believers. So if the whole church comes together and everyone speaks in tongues and inquirers and unbelievers come in, will they not say that you are out of your mind? But if an unbeliever or an inquirer comes in while everyone is prophesying, they are all convicted of sin and brought under judgment by all as the secrets of their hearts are laid bare. So they will fall down and worship God, exclaiming, God is really among you. What then shall we say, brothers and sisters? When you come together, each of you has a hymn or a word of instruction, a revelation, a tongue, or an interpretation. Everything must be done so that the church may be built up. If anyone speaks in a tongue, two, or at three, or at most three, should speak one at a time, and someone must interpret. If there is no interpreter, the speaker should keep quiet in the church and speak to himself and to God. Two or three prophets should speak, and the others should weigh carefully what is said. And if a revelation comes to someone who is sitting down, the first speaker should stop. For, if he, for you can all prophesy in turn so that everyone may be instructed and encouraged. The spirits of the prophets are subject to control, the control of the prophets. For God is not a God of disorder, but of peace, as in all the congregations of the Lord's people. Women should remain silent in the churches. They are not allowed to speak, but must be in submission, as the law says. If they want to inquire about something, they should ask their own husbands at home, for it is disgraceful for a woman to speak in church. Wow, there you go. If, verse 36, or did the word of God originate with you, or are you the only people it has reached? If anyone thinks that they are a prophet or otherwise gifted by the Spirit, let them acknowledge that what I am writing to you is, in the, Lord, is the Lord's command. But if anyone ignores this, they themselves will be ignored. Therefore, my brothers and sisters, be eager to prophesy and do not forbid the speaking in tongues. But everything should be done in a fitting and orderly way. <laughs> oh, man. We got a spicy passage this morning. <laughs> if this is your first time at River City Church, welcome. <laughs> if, if you come back a second time, that might be a display of the miraculous powers we read about in chapter 12. And some of you, you know 1 Corinthians, and you knew chapter 14 was coming up, and you just wanted to see if I'd suffer up here, and just like how I'd be preaching this, and you were like, I'm just going to bring my popcorn this morning, and you are not going to be on my Christmas card list this today, man. So, we should pray. <laughs> so, so, God, um, we're thankful that the gospel is of first importance. We pray that by your spirit we'll just really see what you have for us in this passage and how the gospel shapes everything through this. And Yeah, we pray that you'll um, use me to that end, and I pray you the spirit will just bring unity through to that end. And we love you. Amen. So all joking aside, um, so the way that I'm going to preach this this morning um, is not how I usually preach. So a typical passage, but this isn't a typical passage. So uh, so here's what I'm going to do. So first of all, I'm going to explain uh, what Paul means by prophecy. Uh, then next, I'm going to explain tongues, which for better or worse, <laughs> that'll be memorable. Uh, then I'm going to explain Paul's emphasis for what goes on in the worship gathering, and then I'll then that'll lead us into like taking 
uh, musical worship and taking communion together. So, so let's jump into it. Let's talk about prophecy. So prophecy, like what is it? So I'm going to flatten out a lot of contours here, but there are basically two kinds of prophecy in the Bible. So there's Old Testament prophecy and there's New Testament prophecy. In Old Testament prophecy, there was a literal prophet, and what he spoke out of his mouth was 100% literally from God, and that's why the prophet could say, thus says the Lord, and then the people of God were morally bound to obey it. Okay? So if you disagreed with the prophet, uh, you were disagreeing with God. Okay? In the New Testament, in New Testament prophecy, though, um, which is in the era that we are in right now, it is a little different than that, than that because there are not literal hardcore prophets with "thus says the Lord" kind of authority anymore. So instead, so imagine if there is an umbrella here, and like somebody wrote on the umbrella in Sharpie, "New Testament prophecy." Which, if you see that kind of guy with an umbrella walking down Main Street, you just walk the other way because you know what I mean. All right. So imagine there's an umbrella, and it says "New Testament prophecy" on it. So. And everything under that umbrella right there um, can be referred to as prophecy. So preaching from the Bible, what I am doing right now, that is under that umbrella. Having a sanctified hunch about something from God, like, is under that umbrella. Sensing God leading you to go somewhere or do something or say something is under that umbrella. Um, there are just a lot, sensing that you need to pray for someone is under that umbrella. There are a lot of things under that umbrella of New Testament prophecy. But here's the big difference between Old Testament prophecy and New Testament prophecy. In Old Testament prophecy, there's no questioning that's allowed of the prophets, and what they say is directly 100% from God, and you need to obey it. Okay? But in New Testament prophecy, um, Nobody is given the title of capital P prophet, and prophecies are, are to be evaluated, tested, and weighed by the people of God. So that's why 1 Thessalonians 5.19, which we studied in small groups like last semester, says, and you don't need to turn there, it's like, do not, it says, do not quench the spirit. Do not treat prophecies with contempt. In other words, don't immediately shot block it. Don't give it the hand. Hashtag eye roll. Okay? All right. So, but verse 21, but test them all. Hold on to the good. Reject every kind of evil. That's what it says right there. Okay? So in other words, evaluate it, consider it, weigh it. You're supposed to treat prophecies just like eating at Jack's, Jack, Jack's Chicken Palace up on the university. You just pick off the meat and you spit out the bones. Okay, sometimes there's all meat. Sometimes there's all bones. Sometimes there's a mix of both. Okay? It's like Jack's Chicken Palace. I'm the only one who eats there. Okay? <laughs> all right. Some of you are like, I am all, I'm going to spit out all this sermon right here. Okay? All right. Sorry. So that's why, we, that's why we see in this passage here in 1 Corinthians chapter 4, verses 20, verse 29, two or three prophets, Paul says, two or three prophets should speak, comma, and the others should weigh carefully what is said. Or the Aaron Morrow paraphrase, pick off the meat and spit off the bones. Okay? So what does weighing and testing look like? So first and foremost, it means that in the New Testament era, which we are in right now, the chief authoritative revelation from God is Scripture, the Bible. That's why whenever we encounter something under the umbrella of New Testament prophecy, we test it and weigh it against the chief authoritative revelation of Scripture, including what I say when some knucklehead like me is preaching, okay? All right, so that's why you should know your Bible for yourself. And I would contend that testing and weighing of prophecies in the worship gathering in Corinth 
gives us some clues about what Paul is saying about women in verses 34 and 35. Because simply looking at the context, Paul is clearly not commanding absolute silence from women because this is a letter right here. So like there is like just three chapters earlier in chapter 11, like Paul just mentions how women pray and prophesy during the worship gathering. So clearly, Paul isn't saying three chapters later, like, JK, LOL, they actually can't speak at all, okay? It's like, so what Paul, so why is Paul saying this in verse 34 and 35? So clearly, there is something circumstantial going on with the women in this Corinthian worship gathering, and we don't know exactly what it is, what is, it is that's going on. And because we don't know for sure, like, that's going to temper how black and white we should be about, like, what's going on here. Um, with that in mind, um, conservative theologians like D.A. Carson and Tim Keller, they reasonably point out, I would argue reasonably point out, that the command for silence in verse 34, it really isn't out of nowhere. It's actually in the context of verse 29, where there's a command to test and weigh prophecies. And Carson and Keller say that the worship gatherings in the early church were modeled after worship gatherings in the, synagogue, the Jewish synagogues where elders would test and weigh the preaching and teaching of itinerant, like traveling preachers that would just kind of roll into town like, is this guy for real right here? Okay, So, like, so what Carson and Keller say is that like, um, Paul might have been addressing a circumstantial situation in Corinth that has something to do with a group of women trying to inappropriately strong-arm the role of eldership in the worship gathering. But bottom line, it isn't clear, and it's not the point of the passage. Right? Speaking of other things that aren't the point of the passage, let's talk about tongues. All right, so, so that's why some of you came this morning. You know you did. So... One of the reasons why tongues is often confusing to understand is because there are four ways that the Bible talks about tongues, okay? It's like LeBron going to Miami. It's like, not one, not two, not three, four ways. Some of you aren't NBA fans. You didn't get that joke right there. Okay, like there are four ways that the New Testament talks about um, speaking in tongues. So I'm just going to talk about all four of those ways right there, right here. So the first way that the New Testament talks about tongues is in Acts chapter 2, and you don't need to turn there, but this is the missionary gift of speaking in tongues. This is the missionary gift of tongues. So um, in Acts chapter 2, there's a bunch of religious unbelievers in the crowd in Jerusalem, and the Holy Spirit empowered 120 of the believers to speak to this crowd in tongues. And again, this is the missionary gift of tongues. That's why some of you... That's why sometimes you hear about overseas missionaries in frontier regions who suddenly speak in tongues by the power of the Holy Spirit in real languages that are completely unknown to the speaker, but the hearers can totally understand them in their native language. And some of you are like, that sounds far-fetched. Like, dude, you worship a guy who literally rose from the dead, okay? There's, there's a miraculous aspect to everything in our faith here, okay? So that's what we see happening in Acts chapter 2. There was this wildly diverse group of people from all over the known world who are making a pilgrimage to Jerusalem for a Jewish festival called Pentecost. And this highly international, diverse crowd all heard their native languages being miraculously spoken by the disciples of Jesus. And there was no interpreter needed. And that's what was coming out of the mouths of the disciples 
And what was actually coming out of the mouths of the disciples right there was talking, they were talking to God in a worshipful way. If you want to get nerdy theological, they were using dox, doxological worship, talking to God. It's like this wasn't an evangelistic message right here. That's why it says in Acts chapter 2, verse 11, that the people of God heard the tongue speakers declaring the wonders of God. They weren't preaching evangelistically to people. And that's why Peter eventually jumps in and just preaches the gospel to people right there. And that fits with what 1 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 2, which is going to be up on the screen. So when it says that anyone who speaks in his tongue does not speak to people, but to God. Yep. Like if someone is speaking in tongues, they are talking to God, not to people. That's why speaking in tongues and praying in tongues, those, those phrases are used interchangeably because in scripture, like they're talking about the same thing. Okay? That's the missionary gift of tongues. There's, so too, like the second way that we see the New Testament talking about, about tongues is tongues are used for the purpose of unity in, the, in redemptive history. And what I mean by that is that in the first century, Jews and Greeks and Samaritans and everybody, like um, these were not the most unified, uh, peaceful groups of people in the world. Uh, their conflict and their disdain for each other was uh, a lot more than just like the Iowa-Iowa state rivalry. Okay, this was really bad and it was just, that was just, but God's plan, God's plan for these people was to be unified through the gospel and to worship Jesus together in the same church. And to that end, God used the gift of tongues for that purpose. So that's why we see the gift of tongues makes a cameo appearance in Acts chapter 10 with this Roman soldier named Cornelius and his family. And all the Jews in the room right there with Peter and everybody, like they were super skeptical that God could have favor on those people. Okay. So after Cornelius and his family believed in the gospel and they put their faith in Jesus, the Holy Spirit empowered Cornelius and the people there to speak in tongues. And then Peter and his Jewish apostolic crew were just like, whoa, I didn't see that one coming. I'm convinced now. Like, these are my brothers and sisters in Christ. This also happens in Acts chapter 9 with the followers of John the Baptist for the purpose of unity in the early church with that. So you might have noticed that in the passage uh, last week if you were here and Scott was preaching that there. It's like that happened. I was like, Scott, you just let that one hanging right there, huh? Did you? Okay. All right. So that was the missionary gift of tongues. It was used for unity and redemptive history. The third way that we see tongues used in scripture is here in 1 Corinthians 14, where it was used during the worship gathering in the church. So this is where in, in Corinth, in an orderly way, someone was allowed to speak in tongues. And since the purpose of the worship gathering is the edification of others and not just platforming and expressing like your gift, then there better be an interpreter there present or else you need to sit down and stop speaking in tongues. Or as Tim Keller says, it doesn't matter what you're feeling in your heart or what impulses you, you have, like you need to get a hold of yourself. And when we read stuff like that, the optics of that might sound and feel unspiritual, but it really fits the contours of what Paul is saying like in this chapter right here. And the use of tongues in the worship gathering is different than in Acts 2 because with the missionary gift of tongues because there's, as we saw in Acts chapter 2, there was no interpreter needed. But in 1 Corinthians 14, there's an interpreter needed. Verse 2, Paul says, Indeed, no one understands them. 
which was not the case in Acts chapter 2, comma, they utter mysteries by the Spirit. And if you, if you have um, prayed in tongues before or if you've seen your friend pray in tongues before, that's a really accurate way to, way to describe it because for totally a clumsy um, way to describe it, I mean, it's just like it kind of sounds like gibberish, okay? That's a really clumsy way to describe it. And some people try to say that, like, man, like, those are the languages that the angels spoke based on, like, something in chapter 13 and everything. And I'm like, I'm just always like, dude, I don't know. It's like, you know, like, I think a great way to describe it is the way that Paul describes it. Like, they're uttering mysteries with their spirit, and there ain't nobody understanding that stuff, okay? Like, um, so Brandon talked about this a few weeks ago, but we, along with uh, most other churches in the EFCA, were part of the Evangelical Free Church um, we take the open but cautious position about some of the more miraculous gifts of the Spirit, which is often affectionately known as, the, as uh, being charismatic with a seatbelt. Okay? So open but cautious, um, open but cautious. That just means that, yeah, we're open to them because we see them in the Bible, but we're also cautious about them because of their use and practice um, just often gets like overemphasized and misused. And like, if we even look at Corinth, I mean, like, this is the only time that tongues was talked. Tongues in the worship gathering was talked about, and the only reason Paul's talking about it is because it was overemphasized and misused. Okay, and they were using it in this really self-centered kind of way. And like, some people really don't like the open but cautious position, and that's fine. You know, like in God's sovereignty and in His goodness. God chooses to use lots of different kinds of churches to help people grow in the gospel and make disciples. And that's a good thing. Okay. I mean, Brandon and I don't arrogantly think that every church should look like River City. You know? um, that being said, like Jesus said that you can tell a tree by its fruit, and we like the fruit of being appropriately open, and we like the fruit of being appropriately cautious. So, and we aren't angsty about it. Sometimes people, like, they have, like, um, whatever, like, position or, like, whatever they have on this kind of stuff, it's like, they're so angsty about it. Ugh. It's like they're just eye-twitching mad at it, you know? <laughs> and, like, we're just, we're not angsty about it. So. so there's the missionary gift of tongues. It's used for unity and redemptive history, and we see it used in the Corinthian worship gathering. And the fourth way that we see tongues being used in Scripture is alluded to in 1 Corinthians chapter 14, verses 18 through 19. That'll be up on the screen. Let's read that. Paul says, I thank God that I speak in tongues more than all of you. But in the church, I would rather speak five intelligible words to instruct others than 10,000 words in a tongue. Um, so keep in mind that the Corinthians, these were a bunch of obsessive, single-issue voters when it came to speaking in tongues. Like, tongues was their way of climbing the social ladder in the church and feeling superior to others in the church. And they just loved speaking in tongues and speaking in tongues some more. And they loved waving their praise flags and just doing some tongues some more. It's like, and Paul says to these maniacally obsessive tongue speakers, I speak in tongues more than all of you. But in the church, he basically rarely, if ever, does. So if that's the case, that begs the question, where then is the context 
that Paul does all of his tongue speaking. Conservative, conservative theologian D.A. Carson says the following, There is no stronger defense in Scripture for the private use of tongues, and temps, attempts to avoid this conclusion turn out, turn out to be remarkably flimsy, which is very Canadian of him to say. If Paul speaks in tongues more than all, of the, all the Corinthians, yet in the church he prefers to speak five intelligible words rather than 10,000 words in a tongue, which is a way of saying that under virtually no circumstance will he ever speak in tongues in the church without quite ruling, it out, ruling out the possibility, then where does he speak them? The only reasonable conclusion is that Paul exercised his remarkable tongues gift in private. And if you have questions about that, you can talk to me about that afterwards because that is not the point of this sermon. Um, but like, I want to clearly say two things. One, um, I realize like some of you, this might be your first time hearing like, this is the weirdest sermon ever. Okay, but like, uh, we've been going through, preaching through 1 Corinthians. If you read, or excuse me, if you listen to Brandon's sermon from chapter 12, Paul makes it abundantly clear that not everyone speaks in tongues. Okay, so... Put that like bumper up on the guardrail, okay? Um, but two, and I want you to hear me when I say this, Paul basically called himself the chief tongue speaker out of all the tongue speakers. But he wrote, but keep in mind, he wrote 13 books in the New Testament. This is the only time he talked about it. Like 12 through 14 right here, and especially in 14, this is the only time that he talked about tongues at all. The rest of the 13 books, nothing. Like there's this cryptic like reference like in Romans chapter 8 and even then I'm like, eh, you know. But like he never talked about it and we need to let that sink in. Clearly, clearly Paul did not see tongues as a as central to anyone growing in the gospel and making disciples. You see, what Paul is, we see Paul doing in this passage is he's not majoring on a minor. He's not majoring on a minor. And some of you privately pray in tongues, and that's good, that's cool. Um, you will not be looked on with suspicion here. Um, but keep in mind that it's not central to your maturity. Just like the exercising of any gift isn't central to your maturity. So if Paul is setting a good example in this passage of not majoring on a minor, then what do we see him actually majoring on in this passage? What do we see him press down on and really emphasize? So I'm going to blitz my way through like seeing the emphasis in this passage. So verse 3, Paul says, Prophecy is good but it, because it strengthens, encourages, and comforts those in the worship gathering. Verse 4, he who prophesies edifies the church. Verse 5, prophesying and interpreting tongues are superior to just speaking in tongues because doing so, in doing so, the church is edified. Verse 12, try excelling in gifts that build up the church. Verse 17, the church should be edified. Verse 26, everything must be done in such a way so that the church may be built up. Verse 31, the goal is that everyone may be instructed and encouraged. Like, you do not need to be a Bible scholar with more degrees than Fahrenheit to realize that there is an emphasis going on in this passage, and that is that the center, of the, tar the center target for the worship gathering is to edify, build up, encourage, and strengthen the church. 
Like, it's easy, like, seriously, it's easy to get distracted by, like, tongues and prophesying and everything else in this passage, but that's Paul's emphasis. That's his real emphasis. The Corinthians were being self-focused and so honed in on their own glory and their own platform building and climbing the social ladder that they forgot that the point of any spiritual gift in the worship gathering is to edify, build up, encourage, and strengthen others. And that's the point of the worship gathering. And at this point, like uh, in the sermon, it's, it'd be easy to be like, all right, slow clap it out. That's the great. Let's close in prayer. <laughs> Not yet. Okay. <laughs> but, like, um, but the often neglected additional question to ask is, how does that happen? Like, how does edification, building others up, encouragement, stre- and strengthening happen in the worship gathering. And the best clue for how that happens is actually in the next passage. So immediately, right after Paul talks about like all this stuff in chapter 14, what's the next thing on, on the tip of his tongue? And that's, didn't mean to say that right there. <laughs> chapter verse 15, all right, so chapter 14, 15, verse 1. What's the next thing that he says? Verse 1. Now, brothers and sisters, I want to remind you of the gospel. He's reminding Christians of the gospel. Let that soak in. I, I want to remind you of the gospel I preached to you, which you have received and on which you have taken your stand. By this gospel, you are saved if you hold firmly to the word I preached to you. Otherwise, you have believed in vain. For what I received, I passed on to you as of first importance. Oh, it's such a loaded, great phrase first importance, like what's the most important thing in the Christian life? And these are Christians that he's writing to with this. What I received, I passed on to you as a first importance, that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures, that he was buried and that he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures. And I love that out of all the chapters in in Corinthians that he writes this right after, it's after chapter 14. (laughs) The gospel is of first importance. The way that a lot of people think about the gospel is that it's kind of like the Christian life is like, oh man, it's like a ladder. Okay, I built a ladder going up into our oak tree this summer. It's like, there's a, it's this, our Christian life is kind of like a ladder. And the gospel is the first couple steps on the ladder. And after you get past those couple steps on the ladder, then you move on up the ladder to higher and better things such as unlocking special knowledge or inspirational advice to get you through life or leaning on various tips and tricks or doing better and trying harder and doing more and more good activities and spiritual stuff. And um, bottom line, a ladder, thinking about your Christian life and especially the gospel as some kind of ladder, that's a really bad and unhealthy and unfruitful analogy to think about your Christian life. So a little book called The Cross-Centered Life puts it this way. It says, the gospel isn't the first step in a stairway or a ladder of our spiritual growth. Instead, it's more like the hub of a wheel because it connects to all aspects of our life and should be applied to every area of our thinking and feeling and relating and working and behaving. Therefore, if anything should we should, if the, ugh, therefore, if there's anything we should be passionate about, it's the gospel. And not just passionate about sharing it with non-Christians, but passionately thinking about it and dwelling on it and rejoicing in it and allowing it to color the way that we think about everyone and everything. 
Only one thing can be of first importance to each of us, and only the gospel ought to be. You never move beyond the gospel, because the gospel is the hub of the wheel that connects to everything else in your life. So that's what we mean by growing in the gospel when we talk about that obsessively here at River City Church. Growing in the gospel and like having a gospel-centered outlook on our spiritual lives, like that is the hallmark of River City. And if you miss that, then like we've done a terrible job at, <laughs> at communicating that and living it out. Now, as it relates to chapter 14, the gospel is how all meaningful edification, building others up, encouragement, and strengthening happens. We also see an emphasis in chapter 14 on intelligibility because edification, building others up, encouragement, and strengthening can only happen if it happens in an intelligible way. So the upshot of that is that we need to strive to have the gospel be intelligible here at River City so that the gospel can be our source for being edified, encouraged, and strengthened here in our worship gathering and our whole, and our whole church as well, but like not just the worship gathering, but definitely in the worship gathering because that's, like, that's what Paul's talking about in chapter 14. That's why in our preaching we always get to Jesus. Now, Scripture makes it really easy to always get to Jesus, okay? That being said, there's a lot of... of Preaching happens out there that doesn't get to Jesus. That's not being, being critical. That's just saying what happens. So like in every way, it's like it always, in our preaching, it always comes back to the person and the work of Jesus. And in doing so, the gospel is intelligible so that we can all be edified and strengthened and encouraged by it. That's why in our musical worship, it's not about like putting on some kind of showy performance. Like, we believe that musical worship is an outworking and a response to the, to the gospel, and musical worship is primarily about God and not primarily about us. So, and that influences, like, the songs that we select. Like, so it's all a spectrum here. So it's like a question that we often ask is, like, how centered on the gospel is this song? Like, is this song kind of more about God or is it kind of more about us? Those are the questions that we ask. And we ask those kind of questions because we want the gospel, even in our musical worship, to be, we want the gospel to be intelligible and so that we can be strengthened and encouraged and edified by it. And the gospel being intelligible even extends to people who aren't Christians in our worship gathering. And some of you, not, definitely not all of you, but some of you grew up in churches where you were taught in a really heavy-handed kind of way that the worship gathering is only for believers. And I just want to tell you, like, even in this passage today, like, even Paul wouldn't agree with that. Chapter 14, verse 23. Paul says, So if the whole church comes together and everyone speaks in tongues and inquirers or unbelievers come in, will they not say that you are out of your mind? But if an unbeliever or an inquirer comes in while everyone is prophesying, they are convicted of sin and brought in under judgment by all. So the secrets of their heart are laid bare. So they will, and the fruit of that is that, so they will lay down, fall down and worship God, exclaiming, God is really among you. Paul is saying right there, and it's easy to get like distracted by like the tongues and prophesying stuff, but if you look past that, Paul is saying that we should be mindful and even expectant that people who aren't Christians are going to come into the worship gathering, and that's a good thing. Paul doesn't say, that's not, they should not come. <laughs> that's crazy. But in this passage, Paul isn't, Paul isn't, in this passage, Paul isn't making an argument for being seeker sensitive, but he's making the argument for something better, which is being seeker intelligible. 
one of the questions that Brandon and I often ask is based on this passage. Like, when it comes to our worship services, how do we make this, our worship services, seeker-intelligible? Because we want the gospel to be intelligible to people who aren't Christians. Like, certainly we think about that with our preaching and our worship, but that's also why something as simple as, like, doing announcements like what Becky does right here. It's like, she talks about, like, what's going to be going on and what's happening, because that it's a very different experience than like what other people have coming to a church gathering. So, and I'm not going to give more specific examples about that just because I think it can come off as like being overly critical, but like the reality is that like we've all been, um, we've all walked into churches where like there are certain routines and tendencies that make the entire experience just really unintelligible and unhospitable to anyone who hasn't been attending for years. So 1 Corinthians pushes us towards being seeker-intelligible. And like the ultimate like example of that is like the gospel. It's, like it's intelligible to like believers and to unbelievers because we, all, we both need it. It's like, like for someone who isn't a Christian, they need like repentance and faith in Christ. And in order for like a Christian to grow, they need repentance and faith in Christ. So like we all need the gospel. We can all be edified and strengthened and encouraged by it. And here's what I want to leave you with before we take communion together. So there is also an emphasis in chapter 14 that everyone in the worship gathering plays a role in the intelligibility of the gospel. So last Sunday, um, there was a friend of mine who is a youth pastor in La Crosse. Like, he actually came down here and snuck into our service, just and, um, pretended like he was from Dubuque. And, like, so he was with his family here, and um, we had him over for lunch afterwards because... Um, he and his family are thinking about planting a church somewhere, probably in the lacrosse area. So for better or worse, he wanted to see how we did. <laughs> so anyway, so we had them over for lunch afterwards. And um, so one of the things uh, at lunch, like one of the things Brandon and I were saying was that like, you know, there really aren't, there really isn't anything that's impressive about River City. And Becky rightfully chimed in and just said like, um, actually, we are impressively friendly. And she's right. I mean, don't get me wrong. We do not bat a thousand at that, <laughs> for sure. But she's right about that. And you can accuse me of being over-spiritualizing over this all you want, but like the, the deal is, is that the hospitable friendliness of our culture here at River City makes the gospel intelligible. It helps make the gospel intelligible. So I'm not the normal preacher up here, so Brandon is like normally preaches up here. So if Brandon is preaching and he was like, um, he's up here preaching and he says like in the gospel, God pursues you and longs for you to have a reconciled relationship with him through Christ. That message is, can be pretty unintelligible to you if no one talks to you after the service. Like God wants to have a personal relationship with you. I don't know if anybody else in here does. <laughs> like, by God's grace, when you, and being empowered by the Spirit, when you push through the awkwardness and talk to people you don't know, and you take the time to get to know them, when you invite them into your small group, you are helping make the gospel intelligible to them. You are modeling and displaying that there is a God who longs to be personal with them and longs to know them and longs to invite them into his family. 
So when you show up here on a Sunday morning at River City, it's like we all play a role in making the gospel intelligible like that. That's why when Becky and I pray together on Saturday nights, um, just for what goes on on Sunday morning, like one of the things that we always pray together about is that like that the Spirit would just really empower collectively our people to just really um, pursue people and get to know people, and just so that like so the gospel is just really displayed and showed, shown like in those relationships, because that like that it shows part of like who God is and our His heart for us. That's the one way that we make the gospel intelligible collectively as a community. Because here at River City, like, it's all about Jesus and the gospel. Like, reflecting him and remembering him is central to everything that we do. And that's the whole purpose of why we take communion as well. Like, it's not a ritual that we go through the motions with, but it's a symbolic way of remembering the gospel, like, that the gospel is intelligible to us personally, and it's intelligible to us collectively. Jesus lived the perfectly intelligible life that we were supposed to live, and he died the death that we were supposed to die. And like, it's through surrendering to him in faith that we're made perfectly right with him and reconciled with him. So the bread in communion that symbolizes his body and the drink symbolizes his blood, those things were broken and shed for you. So before you take communion, I encourage you to, like, to just pray and ask God and thank him for like, saving you through the gospel and ask him to empower you by his spirit to help make the gospel intelligible in this community collectively. Do that authentically. Don't make it this like, religious experience where you just go through the motions. Like, Actually ask God for that. So if you aren't a follower of Jesus, I'd encourage you to hold off on taking communion so that it's not just some kind of empty ritual for you. But if you're ready to respond to him through faith and having a, a posture in your heart that you want to surrender to him and follow him, then surrender yourself to him, pray to him about that, and then go take communion. So you take the bread, you dip it in the juice. There's going to be three songs up here being played by the worship team. And you can go back, like, in those, there's two communion stations back there, and you can take communion on your own anytime during those three songs. So let's pray. So God, thank you so much for, um, for putting this in Scripture about, like, this, about what's going on in Corinth. And thank you that we can be encouraged and edified by the gospel through it. And we're just really thankful for you, most of all. And we just pray that, like, collectively um, in this community, that you empower us by your spirit to just really to be cognizant about reflecting the gospel and just seeing it as good news for us. And then we pray you'll just really, like, um, reflect it in, like, how we pursue each other and just really reflect the gospel in those relationships. We love you. Amen.